All right, well, we are back to Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 to 27. And we have seen so much incredible detail already in this section of Scripture. And more still, as we conclude tonight, our verses. Yes, I did say conclude tonight. We're going to tackle two whole verses, so strap in. It's going to be tremendous. Well, Lord willing, anyway. Well, first, the thing that we want to just remind ourselves of that we looked at was the critical connection of the 70 weeks prophecy to the 70 year judgment from Jeremiah 25.10, recognizing that both of these are a direct result of the failure of Israel to observe the sabbatical year rest, that is the seven year rest that the land was to exercise. And that there had been 70 years of failure to observe this every seven year sabbatical rest. Because of that, God punished them and Jeremiah proclaimed that for 70 years, one year for each of those seven, they would be punished to be taken captive by foreign nations, Assyria and later Babylon, and that were they to submit and to acknowledge and to humble themselves, recognizing this judgment which Jeremiah and Ezekiel boldly proclaimed, that is to those in Jerusalem and to those who had been taken captive in Babylon, were they to submit and acknowledge their sin that God would at the end of that 70 year time return them with no further punishment or consequences. But they did not do that. And as a result of that, then came the 70 week judgment. And that's exactly what it is. It's a prophecy, but it is a prophecy of judgment. And of course, the weeks is a word for years, the, uh, the word sabatim, and that is sabuim rather. And that word means seven years. So the 70 weeks is 77-year cycles, 490 years, exactly the length of time that initially they could have been judged. So God gave them a lesser punishment. They did not respond, and so they're going to get the whole enchilada. If we backdated the 490 years from the time of the captivity, which began in uh, 605 B.C., it would take us all the way back to the time of King Saul. And as we look forward at the 70-week prophecy, we saw many aspects of the chronology that came forward. The, again, the, the initial 70 years was from 609 B.C. to 539 B.C. And this was on your timeline sheet. Down here at the bottom below the chart, I indicated to you that it was 609 B.C. Now keep in mind, I just said the first captivity was 605 BC, that's accurate. But 609 was the actual beginning of the punishment. That was the time that the last true king was reigning in Israel. That is a king that was brought forth through his family lineage by his father, the previous king. That previous king, King Josiah, and his son, King Jehoahaz. He was the one who Egypt took captive and was the beginning of the judgment. The 70 years took us from 609 
to 539. And if you turn your sheets over, then you would note that the chapter 9, where we are, the third vision in the first year of Darius was 539 BC. That also is the first year of Cyrus from chapters 10 through 12. You'll notice they're dated the third year of Cyrus at 536. So we back it up three years, 539. So this is the conclusion of the 70-year prophecy that we looked at. Very, very important to understand. Anyone have any questions about that? Speak now or forever hold your peace. Now, we'd love to answer your questions, but if you, if you need to be clear on those connectivities. They're super important. Timelines are fairly straightforward in this part, but not completely. Everybody good? You can throw your arms up. Better to do that than to throw things at me, but I'll take it either way. All right. So we also reviewed how the 70 weeks encompassed both the first and second comings of Messiah. This confirmed in the six accomplishments which will occur during the 20 weeks, excuse me, during the 70 weeks of 490 years as is detailed in verse 24. Verse 24 is an overview of the whole prophecy. And it gives us those six accomplishments that are there. Three negative that detail the events of the first advent of Messiah, of Jesus' incarnation, specifically the times at the cross, but that they'll, they are completed, those first three negatives, at his second coming. The second three positive aspects are completed at the second coming. And you can go back and refresh yourself and quickly look those over and see that. And notice how perfectly acquainted they are. Three negative aspects acquainted with Jesus' first advent wherein he was crucified, wherein he came as the suffering servant. Three positive aspects related to his second coming where he will return, not as the suffering servant, but as the conquering king. And thus the positive related to that and the negative related to his sacrifice for the sins of mankind. So this is an, an important thing for us to understand and to recognize those roles. Everybody clear on those? Kind of understood what we were talking about when we went through those three. As you look at those three, you understand the separation, negative and positive, first advent and second. Very important because all of these things are coming to fruition in our verses tonight. So you need to have a good handle on them. Then we saw the breakdown of the 70 weeks, namely seven weeks and 62 weeks. And notice that's all that's mentioned in verse 25. 7 and 62 is only 69. That means there's another week, but it's not yet spoken about. That's very important because it helps us understand something may be going on there. Oh yeah, by the way, we're living in that something that's going on there. So we started to talk about those different sections of 7, 62, 7 and 62 weeks or 483 total years, uh, that first seven weeks 49, week, 49 years, and then the 62 weeks equal to 434 weeks. If my math is right, and of course I'm lost in my notes, which is usual, wandering around. So, the, the time of the 
70-week prophecy began with the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem and continuing until Messiah the Prince. And this was the seven weeks and the 62 weeks. And of the, the three possible decrees, we showed last week that the only one that fits the details of the grammar and the timetable of what we know historically is the decree by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah, recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, where he will return with the, if you would, really the third exile return to rebuild the city and the walls. And we talked about how that's what the book of Nehemiah is all about from our Old Testament survey. Remember, kneeling on the walls, the picture, Nehemiah, uh, that's what it's all about. So this is the one that best fit that description. Furthermore, Nehemiah 1.1 tells us that this was in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes in the month Nisan. Extra biblical evidence suggests this was the 10th of Nisan. The 20th year of Artaxerxes was 444 BC. This date, if it was indeed the 10th of Nisan, was March 14th, 444 BC. My sweet bride's birthday, just a few years before that. And so this is the date that all of this moved forward. The 69 weeks of 360 days of the Jewish calendar yielded 173,880 days. 173,880 days. That's 69 times 360. Dividing that by our solar calendar of 365 and a quarter days yields a time period of 476 years. Taking the time of 444 BC, the time of Artaxerxes' decree, and subtracting 476 years gives you a result of 33 AD. Keep in mind that there's no zero year when we went from BC to AD, so when you do the math, it will actually come up 34 and you have to subtract one if you actually count the years through that transition. So, as we look at these details, we see that this is exactly the time of Jesus' triumphal entry. And this further fulfilling the prophecy and perfectly aligning with the Passover. Everybody clear on those details? Got the math sort of in hand and arms around that? We had a lot more went through last week because we talked about both of the other decrees, but those, that's kind of boiling it down to just the facts uh, to take a dragnet perspective. So here we have all of these details that bring us forward, and it's a lot of vital details, but we need to know them so that as we come to our text tonight, it all comes together. So let's do that. Let's come to our title, An Arousing Announcement. An arousing announcement is what I have titled our text. And our theme, three facets of prophecy that motivate your faith. This isn't just great information. It is great information. But it isn't just that. 
It is that which is to motivate our faith and move us forward in our walk with Christ. So let's read our verses together again, and then we'll dive in. I'm going to start at verse 24 of Daniel chapter 9. Please follow along in your copy of God's word. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, therein are three negative, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place, and there the three positive at the second coming. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. All right, with that, we want to return to our third point, which I've titled, What Will Again Occur? And the reason I've titled it, What will again occur is because we've been told about a future prophecy and now we're again going to see it moving forward and that which will yet occur in future time. And this is indeed the most futuristic component of all that we've seen in the 70-week prophecy. Verse 26 begins by taking us to a time frame after the 62 weeks. This means after the seven weeks And after the 62 weeks. So in summation, we could say this time in verse 26 is after the first 69 weeks. So after the formal announcement of Messiah, the prince in verse 25, which occurred at the triumphal entry on 10 Nisan AD 33. The Hebrew word beginning verse 26 indicates a condition after a period of time has elapsed. This is very, very important. Because people wonder, well, wait a minute, we had seven weeks, 62, one weeks, that makes 70, and they're all together. They're not all together in our text. They're separated in our text. We've had no mention of the last week yet. And now we have a grammatical phrase that's telling us that a length of time has occurred in between the 69 and the 1. Exactly what we know to be true. So this is very important for us to understand. And this word, uh, this Hebrew word that's translated here, then after, 
is used most succinctly and repeatedly in Genesis chapter 5. And we see it nine times in Genesis chapter 5. Anybody know what's in Genesis chapter 5? It's a genealogy. And it says that such and that after this time, such and such gave birth to a son. So 669 years he lived after the time he gave birth to Joseph. So we have nine different generations that are described for us. And the time that the individual lived after the birth of his son, which passed on the genealogy. So clearly this phrase, then after, is describing a length of time. A gap that occurs. And that's exactly what we need to pay attention here. So we see this gap of time between the 69th week and the events that follow, particularly the coming first week. And this will be further emphasized in the verse by the phrase there in verse 26, and the people of the prince who is to come. A further indication that there's another length of time. We're talking about a people who belong to this prince who is yet to come. So he's not here yet. So again, an elapsed time is clearly indicated by all of these details. And this, uh, again, is so important for us to recognize. People, and the reason it's so important is because people ask, don't they? Where's the gap? Where's the gap between the 69 weeks and the one week? I don't see it in here. Well, it's right there. We just have to recognize how it's being portrayed to us. That it's being separated grammatically by uh, an entire verse. We won't see the last week until the next verse. And it's also being determined for us grammatically, both by the introductory conjunction, then after, and also by the word that there is a prince who is coming. All future events, all indicating that there is a time span between the end of the presentation of Messiah the Prince and the events which are following. So, then after 62 weeks, the next event in our verse, in verse 26, is that Messiah the Prince will be cut off and have nothing. Some might think that after the two previous descriptions of Messiah in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, that Messiah would come and rule. Do you remember those descriptions back in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7? Remember, Daniel 2 is Nebuchadnezzar's first vision of the statue of the four different materials representing five kingdoms because the last material is combined, the iron and the clay. And then remember the end of the vision? Then there is a stone cut out without hands out of the mountain. And it comes down and it obliterates the statue such that there's nothing but dust. That is Messiah. Now that sounds to me like a conquering coming, doesn't it to you? And so also, if we looked in Daniel chapter 7, when we see the presentation of Messiah, and you'll remember this, that in, I believe it's verses 13 and 14, we see the Son of Man being brought forward before the Ancient of Days, that is God the Father. 
And as he is brought forward, we are told that he is given uh, all of these aspects. He's given dominion and authority and glory and power, which are everlasting and will not pass away. And again, I'm thinking, that sounds like conquest language. That sounds like victory language. But what did we just see in our verse? Messiah will be cut off. The the prophecies of chapter 7, like chapter 2, are overarching visions of all of redemptive time. Until such time as we get to the eternal kingdom. So these are both similar elements that talk about all of time. And yet in verse 25, he is Messiah the prince, as we saw, or ruler. And he is the one there who fulfills the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Where God told Daniel that his heir would reign on the throne forever. And this is Jesus who will fill that role. We see more of this conquest language in texts like Psalm chapter 2. Very, very familiar for us. Psalm chapter 2 in verses 7 to 9 reads, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Or familiar verses, especially at this time of year, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forths are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And this is exactly when we looked at verse 25 and we saw him called Messiah the Prince. That word prince can also be ruler. These are all conquest languages. But they overlook the fact that something else is going on. That Messiah will be cut off. You see, the Pharisees made this very mistake. They expected that Messiah was coming to conquer and crush their enemies. They totally missed this verse. That then after that time, as we're clearly told in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26, that after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And this is so many miss this. It's so important for us to pick up. This cutting off and having nothing is the crucifixion which Jesus endured for us. Four days after the triumphal entry, On 14 Nisan AD 33, our Lord and Savior was nailed to a cross and died for our sins. Exactly fulfilling Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and completing 
the Passover of Exodus 14 exactly as he had proclaimed at the Last Supper. This is the new covenant in my blood. The Passover is done. It's over. It's fulfilled. Now you will remember this new covenant. Now you will remember this communion that we are having together. Now you will remember what I have done for you as you celebrate the memorial elements in the Lord's table. So this was something that was so critical for everyone to recognize and understand. So this again are precisely as Jesus has said. Verse 26 further describes the fate of the Jewish people. It says there they are described as the people of the prince who is to come. As mentioned this is a future coming And it indicates a larger gap of time after verse 25 and after the gap of only four days, right? That's all the gap was between the presentation of the prince in verse 25 and his cutting off was four days. Some would say, oh, that's nothing in the, in the scope of 490 years. What's four days? And I would have a hard time arguing with that. However, when I look at this phrase and I see that All of a sudden now we see that these people are of a prince who is to come. Now that tells me that there's yet more, a yet larger space of time. The, these that are mentioned, the ones are the ones who rejected and crucified Jesus And this is, again, exactly as Jesus proclaimed to his disciples over and over again. The prince or ruler who is to come, as described in verse 26, is not Jesus. This is another prince or ruler, and this is Antichrist. This is the Antichrist who is of revelation, who is empowered by Satan. And these are the people that are enslaved to Satan. But make no mistake, there are many who have been enslaved to Satan. Many today that are enslaved to Satan. This is why we are on a rescue mission, as we'll learn in Jude, seeking to snatch them from the fire. But our text is speaking specifically about Daniel's people, the Jewish people, And this verse is specifically referencing the Jewish people at the, Lord, at the time of Christ's crucifixion and the time surrounding it. And this is what the verses further talk about. Notice that it is the actions of these people which will destroy Jerusalem and the temple. Exactly per the grammar of verse 26. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And we say, all right, so when did that come? When, when did that happen? As we recognize these aspects of all that's going on, we have to understand the particular facets of the grammar that's being spoken about. And as Tanner notes, this is exactly what history records. In 66 AD, 
the Jewish people revolted against Nero. Remember, Nero is the most despicable, although all of the emperors have been horrible. Uh, abominations of narcissism. But Nero has topped them all with the things that he has done to Christians, with the things that he has done to Christian children that are unspeakable. So the Jewish people revolt in 66 AD. This is when we talk about the chronology of the books of the Bible. Why in almost all of the cases, which with a very few exceptions, Jude, as Jim has told us in the background two weeks ago, 1st through 3rd John and Revelation are the only books that are written after this period. All of the others occur around 66 AD. And when we start looking at the extra biblical evidence, we find that the last disciples to be crucified and killed were Paul and Peter. And the time is expected to be around 66 AD. That was the effective end of the New Testament writing with the exception of Jude and the Apostle John. So 66 AD, the Jews revolted under Nero and at that time, Vespasian is sent in to quelch the revolt. And Vespasian comes in with the entire power of the Roman army and he is taking no prisoners. And it is not a pretty situation. To look in the Suetonius, the, the, war, the Suetonian Wars, and understand the detail of what happened at that time is horrific. He came in and he was slaughtering the Jews by the thousands. And not only that, but as he went back to Rome, Nero was concerned that the conquering Vespasian may come after him and Nero commits suicide. Vespasian becomes the emperor and he sends his son Titus back to Jerusalem to finish the job. What does every little boy want to be? Better than their dad. Well, Titus decided to take it to heart and he leveled the city of Jerusalem. In the previous captivity by Babylon back in 586 BC, the temple was destroyed and leveled. The city was burnt, but it wasn't brought down. Historians tell us that Jerusalem was nearly a, a flat piece of ground with a few undulations that used to represent the Temple Mount. Titus came and wiped out Jerusalem. And that was in, on September 26th of 70 AD when the city was ultimately and completely destroyed by the Romans. So the fulfillment of this verse is that which happened in 70 AD. Now because of that, a lot of people say, well, all of prophetic history must have been fulfilled in 70 AD. No, that is an errant view of end times and in no way fits the truth of what scripture says. But this particular part, that's exactly what happened. And then we look at the end of verse 26, and it's described as coming by a flood. And the end will come with a flood. And this causes uh, much trouble for some people. Some argue, well, well, no such flood is recorded. How could Jerusalem flood? It is the highest point from anything around it. 
If, a, if Jerusalem flooded, we would certainly have seen some record of it. So there must be an error here or this must be something else. Some say, as footnote 3 does in the New American Standard, that this refers to Antichrist and that the pronoun as it's at the beginning of the last sentence of verse 26 should instead be his end. That the end of the Antichrist came with a flood. This is possible, but it doesn't accord well with the grammar. Rather, we should recognize this same word, flood, used four other times in the book of Daniel. Bounce up to chapter 11 of Daniel with me. Daniel chapter 11 and verse 10. Four times in Daniel chapter 11, this word flood occurs. Listen to them. Daniel 11 and 10. His sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great force, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow, there is our same Hebrew word, and pass through that he may again wage war up to his very fortress. Here's another one. Look down at verse 22. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered and also the prince of the covenant. Here's another one, verse 26. Those who eat his choice food will destroy him and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. Here's our fourth in verse 40 of Daniel chapter 11. At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots and the horsemen and with many things and he will enter countries, overflow them and pass through. The word flood, as we see it used in the book of Daniel, is not talking about a flood of water. It is talking about an overwhelming military conquest that comes as a flood. What happened to Jerusalem? Vespasian and Titus. An overwhelming military conquest. So this should cause us no problems. And this is also consistent with the rest of the terms at the end of the verse and the grammar that's in them. It says further that its end will have continuous war. So it did for four years before it was finally leveled. And it is at a time where desolations are decreed. And so it was with the temple and the city's destruction. These evidence of Jerusalem's continual denial of her Messiah. And God using yet another secular power to come in and pronounce judgment upon Israel. And that's exactly what's going on. Now verse 27 takes us to further discussion of the prince to his to come. Where it says, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. The verse begins, and he will make a firm covenant. The pronoun he here is sometimes questioned. Is this somehow Jesus that's making a covenant or is it Antichrist? 
All we have to do is consider our rules of hermeneutics. And when we're looking at hermeneutics and we see a pronoun and we don't know who it's about, we go back to the nearest antecedent. And who is the nearest antecedent? The prince who is coming, Antichrist. So that's who the verse is speaking about. Antichrist, the one who motivated the people. Back in verse 26. The one who is still motivating people. Recognize that, beloved, that the Jewish people are not just hard-hearted and and contrary to God and doing so willfully because they're shaking their fist at God. Just as much as Adam was led astray by the serpent in the wilderness who was Satan, so also are the people of Israel. They are as duped as each of these who are wandering around in our world proclaiming the appropriateness and the acceptability of abortion, proclaiming the appropriateness and acceptability of homosexual marriage, proclaiming the appropriateness and acceptability of transgender surgeries for four, five, six, seven, eight-year-olds. It makes our blood boil. But recognize, these are people that are enslaved to Satan. God has left us here to be on a rescue mission. There's no other reason for us to be on this earth because everything we do as Christians would be done way better in heaven. And man, would it be great to be away from the sin and the difficulty and the mess of this world. But we have a purpose and this is what that purpose is. So we see that this prince of the people is Satan and that is who's referred to as he in verse 27 and the covenant will be for one week or seven years and this is the summation or the culmination of the 70 years two periods previously discussed of seven and seven weeks and 69 weeks excuse me seven weeks and 62 weeks and now after a dramatic Direct grammatical indication of a break indicating an extended time in verse 26, then after, and the one who is coming, we have this description of time consistent with several years, and now the further illumination on Antichrist. Not during the 70th or the one week, but after the 69 weeks. Very important to recognize that time frame. That he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, that is for seven years, but that this activity is that which is decreed after the 69 weeks. So the gap of time all the way to Messiah's second coming was indicated all the way back in verse 24 of our text with the two groups and that which they would accomplish. The things that the first three would accomplish at his first advent and the things that the second three would accomplish at his second advent, at his return. And the final week is then divided in half as described by the middle of the week. At that time, the sacrificial system which is reinstituted will stop. Thus, we understand that the covenant which this one made, which Antichrist made, 
caused the sacrificial system to again begin or it at least protected it so as to continue against threats. That is that the mosaic system of sacrifices was either immediately reinstituted at the time of this covenant or had been reinstituted just before this covenant. This is a very important point for us to understand as we consider what this time frame will look like. These sacrifices must be that which begin again. Well, what does that mean? For there to be sacrifices, there has to be a temple. So there must be a third temple because there's not one now and there hasn't been one since 70 AD when Titus leveled it. So there will be a third temple or the tribulation temple that will be built. But our grammar and context give us more details on this covenant. First off, the introductory verb of verse 27 is a very unique verb and a very unique verb form. It's the only time in scripture that this verb is used with the noun berit or covenant, according to Tanner. And a literal translation of this might be, he caused to strengthen a covenant. Look at that text in our Bibles. He will make a firm covenant. Now listen to a more literal translation of that very language where it says that he will, uh, where did I go? That he will cause a covenant to be strengthened. I'm sorry. Let me find out where I am here. Um, Because there are two translations that I want you to see uh, about this particular issue. That he will cause to strengthen a covenant. That is the most literal translation of the Hebrew text. Or he strongly established a covenant. The point of this is it isn't the covenant that is strong. Our text indicates that it's a firm covenant. The reality of the verb conjugation along with the noun covenant shows that it is the one who made the covenant from which the strength of the covenant is coming. And you might say, Pastor, what in the world are you talking about? That doesn't seem to make any sense to me. And if you are, that's okay. Because the rest of the story behind that is why. Why is it That this covenant, the one who makes this covenant, has the strength and not the covenant. What is it about this strong person and his covenant? And what it is, is that this is Antichrist, as we've described, making this covenant. And the best understanding of the covenant is that Antichrist is proclaiming that he is the Christ. And he has convinced the Jewish people, that the re-establishment of the Mosaic system and the sacrifices therein is fulfillment of His coming and of the text of Ezekiel 40-48 to of the new temple and the new temple sacrifices. And something else that we're going to see in Daniel 11.37 is that Antichrist has a Jewish heritage. 
Antichrist is from a Jewish lineage. How else could he sell that he was Messiah? Who is Messiah? The son of David. You must be from Jewish lineage. And Antichrist will sell. And Daniel eleven thirty seven tells us that very thing. And we'll get there soon. Also, if we go back to Daniel 7 and the little horn, do you remember the prophecy of Daniel 7? And we had the horns and the little horn who is Antichrist, specifically in Daniel, Daniel 7, 25. Go back with me. Daniel 7 and 25. Back in Daniel 7, 25, speaking of the little horn, he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alteration in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time and time and half, time, times and half a time. That phrase at the beginning of verse 25, he will speak out against, is literally he will speak false words against the highest. That is, the liter- that is literally proclaiming himself out to be Messiah. By the way, this is exactly what we see in the New Testament in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4. 2 Thessalonians 2 and 4. Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat on the temple of God displaying himself as being God. The covenant, the strong covenant that is made, the firm covenant, the strength of the one making the covenant is that he dupes those who make the covenant with him into believing that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Did the Jewish people accept Jesus as Messiah? No. Do they accept him today as their Messiah? No, other than the Messianic Jews who have come to him. As a people, no. So this is how he deceives them. Antichrist, having made himself out to be Messiah, and in this strong establishing a covenant for seven years, then stops the sacrifices in the middle of the covenant period. Notice it doesn't say that he broke the covenant. It states that he stops the sacrifices. Many will say, and you'll hear it said, at the middle of the tribulation, Antichrist will break the covenant. He doesn't break it. He stops the sacrifices. When we look into Revelation and we understand what's happening at the beginning of the great tribulation, we see why he does this. Because now he is formally exalting himself as God. Do you remember what happens? He is the one who receives a wound and then is yet healed. Daniel tells us about that. Revelation tells us about that. Zechariah tells us about that. So he stops the sacrifices. Then the last half of verse 27 is the most difficult of this section to interpret. The abominations referred to here at the end of the verse are clearly those Jesus refers to in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15. And in Matthew 24 and 15, 
Jesus says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So the abomination that we're seeing here is specifically identified by the Lord as that which came from Daniel. But there's other facets to it. What is this wing? The wing has been variously understood as to exactly what the interpretation and the meaning of it is all about. Some see it as a reference to the wings of the cherubim that are over the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, over the Ark of the Covenant. This doesn't seem to hold water because there's no indication anywhere in Scripture that we ever see a return of the Ark of the Covenant. Let alone because those cherubim, you remember, were molded in one piece with the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. So that doesn't seem to be as likely of a possibility. Some see it as a figurative reference to an act that causes the elevation of Antichrist. A wing lifting him, if you will. There, I think, is a little better explanation kind of on that bent, and we'll get to it in just a minute. Some see it as a spiritual reference to the temple. I, I, don't, I don't understand that. I don't see, although the abomination of desolation does occur in the temple, I don't see this as an overall wing, as an overall reference, although it would fit in context. But it could even refer to the false prophet as the third element of the unholy trinity of Satan, Antichrist, and the false prophet. As false worship is clearly envisioned in this passage, and the second beast of Revelation 13.11 is that which lifts the abomination, is that which lifts and glorifies and is the one who is uh, given the miraculous power in order to raise Antichrist who has been killed from the dead. That which deceives many through that end times prophecy. So these are all things that it, it could be. But as we understand it, it seems best to me to recognize this as perhaps something of that, that second beast but it is definitely something that is lifting. It is definitely something that is showing an exaltation of this effect of abomination. And, and literally, as it says there, uh, and on the wing, singular, of abominations, plural. One who will make desolate. The one who will make desolate absolutely is the Antichrist. This will further be an appalling act or one that desolates or one that makes barren, or further stops the sacrifices or the worship to God, thus resulting in a complete destruction of the one causing the desolation. Look at that whole section again at the end of verse 27. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, and that one is either Antichrist or perhaps the false prophet. And that is the wing of abomination is Antichrist desolating and stopping the worship. Even until a complete destruction, that is complete destruction of that one. One that is decreed and is poured out on the one who makes desolate. This is the destruction of Antichrist. 
This is exactly what we see referred to again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 8 through 12. I should never move my bookmark because then I would know where to go. 2 Thessalonians 2 and 8 through 12 reads, Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by his appearing of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Revelation 19 and verses 19 to 21 further describe the binding of Satan and the casting of him for a thousand years into a pit bound until he is finally released and judged at the great white throne judgment along with all of the goats who are not part of the Lord's elect. And this second resurrection is where all of those and death are cast into the lake of fire for eternal punishment. As Mark 9 describes for us, where the fire is not quenched and where the worm does not die. Wow. This is pretty incredible, don't you think? Pretty, pretty heavy stuff. Pretty incredible to see the specificity of this prophecy. Well, as for application, i.e., how is this prophecy to motivate your faith? It should stimulate our prayer and our recognition of sin and its seriousness. Remember Daniel's prayer and almost every verse acknowledging either his sin or the sins of his people. Does our prayer life exemplify repeatedly and often throughout the prayer time our sin and the sins of our brothers and sisters in Christ? It should. It should also stimulate our pursuit of righteousness as wickedness will be fully punished. Make no mistake, God is not mocked. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He will receive full retribution. There is not any who will be allowed into heaven existing in their wicked and unrepentant state. Let it not be us. It should encourage us in our faith as we have such a glorious and specific revelation of God's plan that We must not be downtrodden in our circumstances. Whatever comes upon us, we know the end of the book. And we win. Moreover, he wins and we get to be with him. And it should motivate our evangelism. The darkness of Satan's wicked schemes to enslave men can only be overcome by the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't have to have a perfect gospel presentation. No, you can't have a perfect gospel presentation because that would indicate that you can save someone and you can't. Only the Holy Spirit can. But he wants to use you. 
He wants you to speak the name of Jesus. He wants you to remember one verse to speak to someone. John 3.16, Romans 5.8, Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 10.9 and 10. You pick the verse, Isaiah 64.6, and on and on and on and on. Every verse in the Bible, you can get to the gospel. But it's his word that will not return void. And he's left us here as his emissaries. Brothers and sisters, we are the A-team. There's no backup bench out there. It's us. And these are the things that we must be motivated to. And I pray that these motivations and others will be yours as you meditate on these verses and put them into action. Not being a, forget, or a, for, a forgetful hearer, but rather being an effectual doer. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beauty of your word. Thank you, Father, for such specificity. Thank you for your kindness in revealing this to us. Lord, all we need to know is a command from you, and we are to obey that in full measure. But you, knowing the weakness of our hearts, knowing the frailty of our flesh, knowing how quick we are to doubt and wander, you have given us beautiful pictures of exactly what you're doing so that we will be encouraged, so that we will realize our sin, so that we will understand the desperate need of the world around us, so that we will indeed rejoice in our faith, so that we will indeed seek to grow every day in obedience. Help me in this cause, Lord. I desperately need to do all these things. Help my brothers and sisters. Forgive us, Father, our sins. Me, mine, and them, theirs. And Lord, for your glory, not so that we might be seen as anything, for we know we are nothing before you. But we praise you that you've opened our eyes to the truth of Christ and helped us tonight to see more of your glorious word. Thank you for your incredible love. We rejoice and we proclaim the goodness of the King of kings and Lord of lords, our Savior Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.